This is Inside the Box. I'm Trevor, and I'm here with David. David, how are you doing? Doing great this morning, Trevor. Always great to connect with you again, and uh, looking forward to another uh, fun, stimulating, invigorating conversation. We are here to talk about the Coker Trilogy, uh, three films by Abbas Kiarostami. And David, I'm really excited about this because... Uh, we touched base on this a little bit just uh, before we started to, to record that this may be a bit of a loose uh, podcast. These films are, lend themselves to kind of digressive uh, conversations. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a little bit uh, nervous about my own takes because I feel like in order for me to really articulate my thoughts on them, I need the, po- the, the tongue of a, philosoph- a philosopher poet and uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so that's where you come in. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, duly noted. I will. Uh, yeah, here's I will some pressure today. <laughs> step in and, and uh, wax lyrical, as they say. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. These these films are are unique and and I think very special. I I really like this whole set. I've now gone through it a couple of times. Um, in in a lot of depth this last week in preparation for this podcast. And yeah, it's very difficult to necessarily pin down, you know, what exactly is Kiarostami doing with these? What exactly do these films mean? But I always walk away from them feeling uplifted, feeling feeling good. And maybe there are some things in there that we can look at that maybe don't lend themselves to to that take. But I guess he usually ends the films with a bit of a grace note that really kind of makes me walk away just feeling feeling good feeling feeling more giving more charitable toward my fellow uh, fellow men and women and uh, I don't know what it, give me your just general take like that we don't have to talk about the films themselves sure. yet but how do they how do they strike you well you know in, in listening to some of the special features and uh, reflecting on the films themselves I think you know there's a line that comes up several times maybe even by diff- several different voices about how Kurostami likes to pose questions to his audience rather than you know give answers or use the uh, conventional methods of you know narrative filmmaking that play on the emotions I mean he does some of those things but he doesn't do them all very conventionally but uh, back to that point about asking questions. I think that's that's kind of where I come from and maybe what you're uh, kind of indirectly referring to and feeling that uplift, that we're being engaged with by a, a very perceptive and intelligent person who has interesting things to say and interesting ways of saying those interesting things. And uh, and I so I think to me that's it's the engagement, it's kind of the refreshing style that he uses. It's very personal, it's very much his way of, of uh, perceiving and depicting and then expressing uh, his observations. And and because there is that sort of open-endedness that allows the viewer to fill in the missing pieces, imagine what might be going on in that long shot where you can't really hear what's being said, but you perceive body language or you can put yourself in that situation, you know, trying to get the car up the hill or whatever, you know. And, and I think that... You know, I've used this analogy before, this kind of statement where I feel like a, a very significant degree of respect is being shown to me as a viewer 
by the director and the creative team uh, that you know all together put these films uh, in front of us. They 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 are challenging, but not you know exploitive or or confrontational for its own sake. They're they're objects of art that says here's my expression. It's maybe a little bit elusive. It's not real obvious, but check it out. See what you think of it. Engage with it pull some kind of value, some kind of meaning from the encounter, and then, you know, come back and visit it a couple of years later and see if there's something different that sticks out at uh, this time. So, yeah, that's similar. You know, I I had only seen one of these films prior to getting the, um, the full box set um, that was Through the Olive Trees, which I sort of inherited as a DVD from somebody who no longer felt like he needed it, so he gave it to me. And uh, I was like, oh, Kurosami, yeah, he's a name, he's an important director, I'll take it. I watched it as such, and it's like, what's going on here? Why are they taking so long? Why are they showing the same scene over and over again? And I, I do believe that you know these latter two films do benefit from being seen in the context of this trilogy, which you know, Kurosami maybe almost predictably denies was ever conceived of as a trilogy. Um, he doesn't want to be that that plain, right? Uh, but at the same time, I don't think there's any denying that these films really connect. They they belong together and are best viewed as sort of uh, self-referential works that kind of grow from this kind of conventional story about children and into something much bigger and, and vaster and, and deeper uh, without necessarily being self-consciously, you know, capital I, important, you know, um, they're just what they are, but there's a lot there to be found and, and to be discovered and to be valued. Wow, you watched Through the Olive Trees first. That that does strike me as a, a bit of a, a jumping off the deep end and, and not knowing how to swim. <laughs> well, well, yeah, and, and that's very much what was my experience. The same with the first time I saw A Taste of Cherry, which isn't really part of this trilogy, but I, you know, I watched it as a library borrowed old Criterion DVD because I'd heard the name and Oh, it won an award in France. I just didn't get it. That was many years ago, and I still haven't watched the Blu-ray upgrade to my uh, disgrace. But I, I have plans to remedy that very quickly because I'm in a little Karastami kick now. <laughs> so it's time for me to kind of delve deeper into his works. But this is a great way to really get acquainted with this uh, singular director. Well, I will just say that I I, I watched a, a YouTube video uh, a few weeks ago. Um, it was a, a guy walking around his his library, his home library, and you know, very. He's the philosopher poet that I was kind of talking about before. Wax is eloquent about reading and all of that, and he pulls out a book, um, Thomas Mann's uh, Buddenbrooks, and he says, "Buddenbrooks, I haven't read this one yet. Good." Oh, you know, that's something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I know you've seen Taste of Cherry, but haven't seen the uh, upgrade. And I'll just say good. I, I really think that you'll you'll enjoy that upgrade. It looks um, fantastic. And yeah, I think I think Kiarostami is really working in a, like it's it's like a, a bunch of dominoes falling over. I, I, I really do feel like one film kind of leads to the next one including moving from Through the Olive Trees to Taste of Cherry. Uh, he himself seemed to think that, you know, yeah, I can see why people call this the Coker Trilogy, but I would maybe put, um, if I was forced to do so, and life goes on, uh, Through the Olive Trees and then Taste of Cherry as a trilogy. And so I, I, I'm looking forward to, to um, 
hearing your thoughts on uh, revisiting Taste of Cherry uh, mm-hmm. after watching these. So, well, and let's throw Close Up in the mix too, because that's kind of his mm-hmm. single mm-hmm. film, universally regarded masterpiece that was made in the midst of the trilogy here. So, yeah, lot lot of great room for you know conversation there. Yeah, definitely, and and. Uh, let, let's talk about Kiarostami just a, a little bit uh, before we dig into this particular box set and maybe our own personal experiences uh, with him. Uh, you know, he's an Iranian filmmaker. Uh, he did make narrative films in the in the 1970s and then after the revolution, he started working on more documentary-esque films and, and, and maybe, you know, some strict, what we would consider pretty straightforward documentaries. And that led to uh, uh, Where is the Friend's House, the first film in the Coker trilogy. And we will get into more of his uh, filmography, how it develops from there, and how he starts to get very, um, you know, playful. And it, it, I think for meaningful effect uh, with his work, and very coy. <laughs> I'm sure some people don't appreciate that he's doing this, feel like they're more being uh, played a game with. But but I'm with you. I feel like there's a lot of respect going on there with his audience. And then uh, later on in life, he started uh, making um, more, uh, what would you call them? Things like certified copy and, um, you know, a little bit more, he left, left, left making films in Iran and started making uh, enigmatic uh, films with uh, big actors, you know, after years of working with uh, unprofessional actors and uh, kind of, uh, you know, ended his career on a string of those and died in uh, on July 4th of 2016. And then we got a, a very strange kind of capstone film uh, in 24 frames. Um, I know I'm I'm giving his life short shrift. Uh, I'm not trying to 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 skim over any of the particular details, uh, but that's been my experience with him. I started with close up with that uh, that Criterion release, and have worked my way around. I I actually still have not seen um, like someone in love, uh, which which Criterion released a few years ago and was one of his last films to be made. Uh, saving it, I guess, savoring that that opportunity probably will happen soon. Now that we're mm-hmm. <laughs> you know talking about his work, um, but my experience with him was really kind of this opening up of of these boxes, and uh, I mean that metaphorically. We'll, we'll talk about it specifically with the Coker trilogy, but you know, uh, looking at at this this film here and thinking, you know, with close up, what is going on? What does this mean? But being very intrigued. And then getting into something like certified copy and having a, a very you know different kind of film, but still leaving me um, questioning and and confused in, in an intriguing way. And then seeing something like Taste of Cherry and Twenty Four Frames. And my experience with Kiarostami's work has been uh, maybe even only through the releases that are in the Criterion Collection. I don't think I've ever. Um, seen any of the other ones that that haven't been released so it's it's a bit limited but still a fairly good overview of his career and just kind of curious about your own experience with Kiarostami mm-hmm. and his work yeah well kind of I've already kind of described a couple of my first encounters which is you know again when I was really just beginning to get into the Criterion collection and 
you know, the films that kind of bear that that label, that uh, you know, seal of approval, if you will. Um, I, I borrowed a taste of cherry from the library and watched it, and I, I just really, even though I was a fully grown adult man, I just wasn't ready for it. You know, I just I didn't really understand, you know, what's what's going on with these guy this guy just driving around talking to people i mean i i understood that you know the basic story but i didn't understand what what made it an award winner what was the kind of you know next level of of a achievement here so i just sort of um you know checked it off the list there and says okay i've seen it but i'm not exactly drawn to this style of filmmaking as i was finding things like you know kurosawa bergman and you know the more kind of immediately accessible engaging you know, easy to admire and appreciate because there's so many interesting things going on there. So my my attention was kind of drawn more in, in that direction. And then I got the Through the Olive Trees DVD, again, watched it, and it's like, yeah, there's a, it's, it's kind of dry. It's kind of <laughs> elliptical. I don't really understand, you know. I mean, you know, you, you sort of get the cleverness, if you will, of the self-referential. Here's the director talking about the movie that he's making. And, you know, so there's a little bit of a, you know, a fourth wall breaking thing going on here. But, again, without much context other than, this is Kurostami. He's an important director. Check out his stuff. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, you know, but, um, you know, it seemed like there was maybe some extra effort necessary or just something that kind of allowed the film to glide past me as I've seen it, you know, I, I can say that much, but let me check out these other things that are just a little bit more, you know, uh, gripping and, 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 and compelling for me to, to, you know, continue my learning and exploration so the Kurostami kind of sat there and then I did see close up a few years ago and did a podcast about it and because you know the the sort of the phenomenon of podcasting just kind of gets you watching closer you read up on it you watch the supplements and all of a sudden things start coming together it's like okay yeah this guy is pretty brilliant and and so you can sort of see how uh, people who were following the emergence of this guy, and he's also a pretty cool individual. You know, he's got a great style. He he has that kind of Godardian look with the dark shades, and you know he's art. You know, he's articulate. He, he's he's expressive. He's you know just a, sort of a fascinating specimen. You know, and, and as he's doing these festivals, and really giving um, voice to Iran as a as a great culture, a civilization. Uh, especially in the West, um, because of the impact of the revolution and the politics and all of the things that went on, uh, you know, he's he's almost perform, uh, performs a very important balancing act. Um, you know, people who live here in the United States and, and other Western nations get a lot of negativity about Iran as a as a government and by extension uh, by as a people or as a culture. And Kurostami is there to remind us, hey, we're just regular people who live here. Whatever you may think about the government, I mean, you know, he's he's kind of sidestepping the more controversial opinions or things that are going to, you know, get him in big trouble. He had enough of that to deal with just because he was a, a kind of an unorthodox, a non-traditional artist who created works that the, uh, you know, Iranian theocracy was like, I don't know what to make of this, you know, but we're going to kind of put the clamps on and, and for, of course, many 
very fine Iranian filmmakers have had to deal with a lot of censorship and repression uh, just because of th- those tensions. So Kiristami kind of occupies this interesting singular role. He's certainly not the only Iranian director out there, but uh, he is the preeminent one. He's he, in a way kind of like how Kurosawa is like the introduction to Japanese filmmaking for so many people. Here in the West, Kiristami sort of steps into that same role with Iranian cinema or Persian, Middle Eastern, uh, where you know there isn't a, a real strong tradition that's at least accessible here in the West. You know, there's a few other directors, uh, Panahi and others that that we can maybe mm-hmm. reference, but um, it is it's it's hard to find their stuff outside of Criterion unless you really want to you know roll up your sleeves and, and track it down. So. Um, so with the release of Close Up, all of a sudden I feel like the pieces are coming together. And then um, I saw a certified copy. Again, just a, a pretty cool, you know, intriguing, uh, mentally stimulating art house uh, work from the later stages of his career. But, you know, great performances, nice enigmatic story. And especially for anybody who's been married for a while, you know, you just sort of, you know, kind of lose yourself in this particular couple's um you know, sort of the games they play on themselves and, and even on the audience. So that's basically been it. But uh, I, I watched the Coker trilogy when the box first came out a couple of years ago, um, very eagerly anticipated it and was very satisfied, very pleased with the, the whole package here. And again, like you, this past week, I've been kind of digging into it, watched all the supplements this time, which I had not done before. I just basically looked at the main features themselves, maybe watched a couple of the shorter you know, extras, but uh, this one I watched everything, read through the booklet, and uh, you know, did a little bit of online reading, but uh, you know, not a whole lot. I really just let the film speak to me, and that's kind of be going to be my frame of reference for the rest of this episode. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, you know, some of the things you said there you know, ring true ring true to me as well. Um, I would say for, for me, the Coker trilogy is maybe the first time I've sat down and watched his work. And felt like, even if I didn't always get it, in quotes, felt like I was in the hands of a master. Many of the other ones, when I've sat down to watch them, I've wondered if it was me or if it was him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, And I just wasn't ever going to appreciate it. I have learned to appreciate everything I've seen by him. Um, but some of the other ones took a little bit more work. Um, particularly something like 24 frames there at the end. When I sat down to watch that... I just had to to kind of think: Am I am I getting this? You know, is this is this really what he's trying to do? And by the end, I was absolutely hypnotized. I love that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Coker trilogy starts with such a, a a nice touch, and then I like I said, kind of continues. And I guess by this time, uh, maybe I've had enough of his work underneath you know underneath my belt that I. I felt uh, much more just in, in you know allow myself to be in the hands of, of someone that I admire and, and really enjoy. And uh, one final question before we get into the box set. One of the one of the supplements starts with um, a quote by, uh, by by someone that you've brought up, uh, 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 Kurosawa, Akira mm-hmm. Kurosawa, mm-hmm. and it's kind of lamenting when Satyajit Rai died. You know, just feeling a, a void, and and I can't remember the exact quote. I didn't write it down, but just you know, mourning the death of a great director and uh, maybe even a friend uh, to Kurosawa, and then Kurosawa finding the work of Abbas Kiarostami, 
and thinking, oh good, there's someone who can who can grab onto that torch and and keep going with some of the same humane work that that Rai uh, was was doing. I do feel that as different as their movies are, as different as I think the work they were doing was, I do get that same sense of of humanity um, in Kiarostami's uh, work that I get when I watch some of my favorite Satyajit Rai films. Do you have any any thoughts on their relationship? <laughs> I, you know, yeah. not uh, more of a, uh, I guess a. Th- <laughs> Not real relationship, but just their, you know, what Kurosawa was saying there. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, before I saw the Kurosawa quote, which was kind of on my little checklist of things to mention, and and maybe sub, even subconsciously one of the reasons I brought him up earlier, is I had that same sense. You know, you know, you and I talked about the Apu trilogy a few episodes back, and and I had that same sense again before I heard any references from Kurosawa or from you. Like, yeah, uh, Kurosawa is fitting into that Satyajit Rai sweet spot for me now. A, a kind of a warm humanity uh, kind of a compassionate and yet clear-eyed outlook on you know just sort of the nature of life and the frailty of existence and the deeper implications of life's very mundane ordinary small negligible events you know they, they, they they're still huge echoes and ramifications from even just simple decisions and choices we make or uh daily encounters we have with another ordinary person you know uh, these aren't films that are capturing the big moments of history now there may be big moments of history happening around them like an earthquake or whatever but uh, it's it's um just kind of like okay now what you know what do we do and and um like satyajit rai who sort of has a way of presenting those those ordinary moments to us in ways to say wow look deeper, look closer, check out what's going on here. It, Kurosami seems to be coming from a similar place, even though you're right, their, their filmmaking techniques are different. Uh, Kurosami definitely gets into more of a self-consciously artistic presentation. I mean, you know, Rai does his cinematic stuff too, but he seems to just be, you know, content to just tell stories. With, with Kurosami, you're going to get stuff like 24 frames. You're going to get stuff like... 10 which i haven't seen but you know again sort of there's a conceit here of let's just drive around in a car and have conversations with people and and that's the film and then some of the stuff i was reading on wikipedia things that he was doing in the 2000s very elliptical you know i mean just basically shots of landscapes and nature with no narrative no characters and that's his latest movie um you know, a documentary that he shot in Africa, ABC Africa, about uh, an AIDS crisis and and the you know the devastation of that plague in in that country, and he's there just kind of uh, doing location and prep shooting and and doing some studies, but then he uses that material to make the finished film, and that's it. You know, there was going to be supposedly extra filming or extra work done, but nope, I'll just go with what I've got here. Um, the way he structures scenes and you know, inserts himself into the actual moment of filmmaking, but then edits himself out and puts somebody else in. I mean, there's there's a lot of, you know, um, kind of a sleight of hand type of things going on in his films, uh, whereas Satyajit Rai is, as I've already said, kind of just telling you a story and letting you get caught up in that. So Kuristami might be seen by some as a bit precious or as a bit... Um, you know, self-conscious, maybe even manipulative. If you feel like maybe he's being too clever 
or or condescending, especially as he moves into this um, status of this highly regarded artist. I, I can understand maybe some people seeing that as a bit off-putting or or dry or 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 overly hyped. I think that might be one of the impressions I might have taken away in my first viewing of Taste of Cherry. You know, because again, you're hearing this guy being praised through the roof, and and here's the award winner, and 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 all of that. But if you don't get it, it's like, hmm, <laughs> really, you know. And and so I, I can imagine even even some listeners, um, after they hear you and I, you know, gush about these these wonderful films, um, you, you kind of have to work your way to his wavelength. And I I don't want to say that in some kind of pretentious or snobby way, like if you don't get it, it's your fault. But he's not necessarily just going to land in your lap and just blow you away. I, he might. I, you know, there might be some people who are. You know, like right there with him from the get-go. Um, but yeah, sometimes you got to just sort of adjust your expectations, um, get on a different vibe, and and then see what the artist has to say to you. And I think Kurosami fits into that category. Nicely put. Um, all right, let's let's look at the box because I think um, <laughs> it, uh, we, we talked about this. I can't remember if we were recording it or not. Um, but when I first got this box, I didn't know much about this trilogy. I'd heard of the films, I'd heard of the trilogy, looking forward to the day Criterion were to release it because we, you know, figured it was coming. And then this box comes with this incredibly unique design that I've never seen them do in anything else, Criterion do in anything else. And I had no idea why it was set up this way, almost like a, a little... Um, you know, uh, Russian doll or something like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm picking up the box right here. First off, I just, I like the colors. I like the minimalism of, of it. It looks, looks kind of dignified, <laughs> you know? Oh, classy. I definitely, it's yeah. a, as a shelf item, uh, it's, it's very impressive. Well, and I can't remember my first impression upon seeing, you know, when Criterion released the cover, uh, and just the cover, if I was like, well, what, what's that you know three uh, little little squares uh with different textures in them one looks like cement one looks like road one looks like some grass what's that all about uh but when you get the set you realize that those are those are cut out and they're showing you know the the cover has the die cuts to show something underneath it and as you open it up uh, the the first one is through the olive trees you know the third film <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and a lot of its cover itself is die cut and cut out and you you flip it over and it doesn't open to the film itself it opens to the next cover which is and life goes on which in and of itself you know you can see where some of these textures are coming from now it's part of this cover the cement uh, the you know the wall the broken wall and Yet it itself is also die cut, and you open it up, and there's the middle film or the middle the middle box, and it is the first film in the set, the the wonderful where is the friend's house, and you know this is such a unique way to put these things together. They're they're nesting. It's a nesting doll. They're nesting inside of one another, uh, but you know I I, I love the setup. I didn't know why it was why it was like this, but I was definitely intrigued. Uh, Scott and I, in our last um, uh, you know kind of year in review episode, uh, talked about covers. You know, often being our introduction. You know, kind of an artistic uh, escort into the film itself. And 
oh boy, this was this intrigued me. This made me excited. <laughs> so, so what what were your experiences with the with the box set when it, when you finally saw what what they were up to with it? Very clever, I'll say. <laughs> oh, what well, ingenious and and definitely um, really one of their most rewarding sort of yeah. design specimens. Uh, because you know the nesting doesn't stop with just those cases. The book itself has some really interesting graphic stuff. If you, because it's it's kind of stapled in the middle, you can sort of peel back and sort of see like the inside cover is one continuous image, and then on the page immediately facing it, you have similar versions of the zigzag path up and down the hill, but they're kind of like inserted into each other. So you've just got this, you know, multi-textured graphic. Uh, demonstration and then the, the way that the uh, the covers function uh, and then there's a, a nice sort of not a centerfold because the actual centerfold is text but then there's a kind of a portrait of Kurostami probably from around the time that he made these films or the, certainly the earlier portions he looks pretty young here so it's just it's just a really well executed design and it, it shows that the people who put this package together have immersed themselves in the films and have done their best to uh, respect and reflect the the kind of unique uh, interlaced structure, the nesting structure, as you described it, of these three films. They, they kind of all connect and grow out of and into each other. And it's, you know, certainly there's a chronological sequence um, but, but really there's, there's commentaries, you know, going backwards as well. Um, and, and so you, you just got a really nice little artifact, whether you, com, you know, collect the entire Criterion, uh, library or just selective titles. This is one that, that looks nice on the shelf. It feels good in the hand, the, the texture of the paper, uh, you know, just the whole, you know, aesthetic of, of how this, volume speaks to you says okay i i've got something kind of special here and i think that it is it's a very inviting rewarding um way of approaching and and really welcoming you into the encounter with these films so you've got this nice object that's kind of going to give you a a, a walk through there's going to be a very generous essay while it's not you know just jam-packed with lots of extra supplements they're all good they're all you know revealing extra insight into the film so you know if you just want to watch the movies and and have the experience or if you want to do a real you know deep encounter with them uh the material is all right here so uh yeah they've they've done this trilogy uh wonderful justice when i talk about the through the olive trees dvd that i got it was actually a dvd called iranian films or iranianmovies.com so it was not at all what you consider like a commercial release it, it seems like these are films that were made for uh, maybe iranian american or uh, audiences or you know, people from iran who've emigrated to the usa uh, or maybe other countries where you can get that disc so it really was more of kind of a, an odd specialty item um, and without any context no special features which again sort of you know hindered my comprehension at the first this really does kind of spoon feed it for the audience so there's there's great material here and um and we're all the better off to, to have it at our disposal as we you know come into contact with these movies well are we ready to dig into that center nugget then well let's do it yeah yeah it's been a half hour of, of preamble so let's go ahead and start with uh where is my friend's yeah, house? Yeah, you know, and I've seen this translated various ways. Where is my friend's house? And Criterion yeah. is, is elected or gone with where is the friend's house, which I think is a, 
the friend's house, little thing. Mm-hmm. the friend's home. Yeah, right, right. and this was a 1987 release, uh, Where is the Friend's House? And uh, Kiarostami had written a script for it. And, and you know, it's kind of crazy when you, when you watch the movie... Like what? What must that script have looked like? <laughs> there's not a, you know, there's there's some various conversations, but you know, if I find that the films themselves can be enigmatic, I just can't even imagine what picking up a script of these would 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 look like, where you can't see uh, everything that he's seeing in his mind as he as he's imagining this. But but he had written the script, uh, you know, like I said before, he was doing documentaries, he was working uh, for you know, kind of the upbringing of children. And this is something that he had written with the intention of having somebody else direct it and make it. But he was talked into doing it himself and went off to Koker, this region up along the Caspian Sea, about uh, 200 miles from Tehran. And it's clearly an impoverished uh, area. You know, I used to, to live in Brazil you know, along the Amazon and, you know, some of these big bustling communities, this just took me back there. I know they're very different, very different cultures. I'm not trying to equate them. Um, but I just remember, you know, this is a place that has grown fast and developed, you know, in older ways before there were roads, you know, before they they had a, a lot of all of that. And so there's still uh, dirt pathways that, that climb up mountains and, and homes built right along that pathway you know, it's almost like a little bit of a of a, a labyrinth in some of the ways that it's shot here. Um, but you get you get this uh, this you know less less well to do uh, corner of the world, and this film is fairly simple if we just look at its premise. Uh, it's easy to explain. Um, I'll go ahead and do that, and then then let you kind of add on to it. Uh, you know, essentially, we have a young boy. Um, probably eight years old or so, uh, who is in school. You know, it starts with him in school, and the teacher comes in. The teacher's late, but the teacher nevertheless can't help but at that moment start talking to the kids about the things they should be doing. Um, you know, if I'm late, you've got to assume that something has happened and and behave and start with your stuff and all this. He never says that something happened; just says that they need to assume it. Um, anyway, I'm digressing already into the into some of the little details, <laughs> but it, basically, the teacher starts checking off the kids' homework, and the the boy sitting next to our our protagonist, uh, who's named Ahmad in the film, the boy sitting next to him doesn't have his notebook. And ended up doing his homework on just some other paper because he'd left his notebook at his cousin's house the night before. And, you know, the teacher really kind of lays into him, uh, not in a not in a violent way as far as, you know, you know angry with, um, with yelling at him. But you can tell there's a history of, of firmness and of these are the expectations and you will meet them. And the the little boy starts to cry, and is is there's a genuine fear that he's in trouble, might get expelled. Um, anyway, that scene ends. They go there. They go home, and Ahmad, when he gets home, realizes he has his own notebook for to do his homework, but he also has the friend's uh, notebook, and this just you know terrifies him because he knows that it's going to to lead to a big problem the next day in class where it'll make his friend cry and maybe get him expelled. But, you know, maybe that's part of Ahmad's um, 
concern there, but it, it really seems to be more. I don't, I don't want to see my friend cry. And so the film is his little quest to travel from his place in Coker to uh, a place that's farther away and maybe even a little less well-off in Poshta uh, to find his friend's home. He doesn't know where he lives, but to find the home to return the notebook. I mean, that's that's it in, in, a, in a nutshell. That's what gets, that's the engine that makes this film, makes this film go. But boy, is there a lot of other things going on in in this movie. But uh, like I said, I'll turn the the turn the mic over to you, David, to to give me some of your thoughts on the film's setup. Okay, no, no problem. Well, yeah, well, let's just talk about how did this film end up getting shot in this little Coker village, and and apparently they had they had scouted different locations, but they were looking for uh, the right spot that would be. Yeah, accessible. I mean, there was. I think some of the earlier places they tried. He was concerned that the accent of these people would would only invite ridicule. They they were like too much like country bumpkins of some sort, which just kind of gets you this little interesting glimpse into Iranian society. Uh, this is about what is you know eight nine years after the revolution, and so you know we're still dealing with a society that's trying to resettle itself. The revolution was largely driven by inequities. You know the rich and the poor and the the elites. Um, you know, living in great luxury, but lots of other people really, really struggling. And so you got a little bit of a class thing going on here as, as Kurosami is taking us into uh, a pretty basic, rustic village. But I was I was just really struck in the early passage, just about the that scene in the classroom. And what I consider to be, you know, not abusive in a physical sense, uh, but maybe in a little mm-hmm. bit of a psychological sense. A, a lot of reliance on shaming and calling the kid out in front of his classmates and the teacher sort of making him an example like, hey, boys, you don't want to be this kid here, you know, don't you dare forget your notebook. And, you know, I'm, I'm on the one hand, I'm thinking, man, the teacher really is is roasting this kid over a very small you know, disciplinary type of issue. Uh, to me, it feels like it's kind of overblown. If the kid's doing the homework, that's the important thing, not what book he uses. Uh, is the teacher being unfair, or is this teacher just a product of the system itself? This is what he's expected to do. If he's too lenient, he might lose his job. And so, you, you know, you, you, you know, my mind just starts going to these systemic things of the upbringing of children and education. Of course, this is mm-hmm. a uh, gender segregated classroom. There's no girls to be found. All the boys and girls are, do their thing separately in this very traditional uh, corner of Iranian society. So there, there's just that so sort of sociological observation stuff. Uh, but then you're right. Uh, Ahmad's um, empathy uh, when he sees his his you know his classmate sitting right next to him just crushed and 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 broken and 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 humiliated um and and dreading because maybe the kid knows i'm just kind of forgetful i'm always you know misplacing things and he's just sort of again can read all of that in there and um you know we all know that childhood doesn't guarantee how you're going to perceive other things there are kids who might find it funny or you know kind of uh, make make the crying boy an object of ridicule because oh he's such a baby he's so sensitive uh but that's not Ahmad Ahmad is very empathetic uh, compassionate, um, very you know, concerned. he's not necessarily even very concerned, exactly. And he's not blaming the teacher. He's just saying, I've got to help my friend out. And there is that little 
you know, they, right after school, there's a, a bit of a quick encounter that they have. I was looking carefully to see where does the transfer of the notebooks actually occur, <laughs> but I don't know that it's actually depicted, you know. Um, but at some point, you know, the you know, Ahmad picks up the notebook because they have identical covers, you know. And so it's a pretty understandable mistake. And then you've got the encounter between Ahmad and his mother, where his mother, again, just has him do your homework, then do your chores. And Ahmad's like, no, Mom, I've got <laughs> to gotta get the notebook back, you know. I, I was going to say, that's, do those yeah. both at the same time. Ahmad, do your homework. Ahmad, get the baby. Ahmad, do your homework. Ahmad, yeah. go get some water for oh. the baby. Ahmad, do... <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, it's, it's just this kind of, you know, your your life is just micromanaged by by tradition and role and responsibility. And, you know, um, I think he's got an older brother who's doing his homework. So, you know, Ahmad finds himself in this really conflicted place where he's trying to be a good son and... and you know, wants to do the right thing. I mean, he's a boy with a conscience. That's that is for sure. And uh, at the same time, he he needs to help his mother understand. No, this is really important. You know, I got to sort of break the rule or or go against expectations uh, before it gets too late. Um, this kid needs to have his book so that he can do his homework. He can't do his homework without it. And it's just like, what's he going to do? And so, um, but then she says, go get some bread. So that's his excuse. That's his, <laughs> that's his ticket out, you know? And so he sort of smuggles the notebook under his little sweater vest there and begins his heroic epic quest <laughs> to get the notebook back to, to where it belongs. But all he has is a name and a village. And of course, that's where the uh, the famous zigzag road makes its debut as he heads up over the hill and onto the other side and, uh, you know, sets off on his journey. Well, and boy, there's there's so much. I, we're, we're not really going to be able to dig into all the things that I thought were interesting. Yeah, without a three-hour episode, <laughs> right, right. But even just those two parts with the teacher and with his mom. I mean, clearly he, he's dealing with a, a fairly hypocritical and cruel adult world. And it's easy for me to sit back and be like, oh, what a ridiculous, you know, awful teacher. And I agree with you. There, There is a, abuse going on in those relationships. I mean, he tears up the, the child's homework right in front of him. And he asks oh, those yeah. just awful rhetorical questions that he know, you know, why why didn't you get up 10 minutes earlier? You know, I mean, he's he's so, here's what you do. Here's what you do. here, And, and here's the, and, and exasperated, like, why can't you do it? Um, and the mom is similar. But you're right, there is something humane still in the portrayal of these two characters, I think, that they do show some reticence at times to their behavior, both of them. But the teacher, when he starts to realize he's striking a nerve, he does soften his voice and hesitate just slightly at times. The mom does something similar when she finally listens to Ahmad's uh, concern but for her, it's not a big deal. We'll just take it to him tomorrow, you know. But she does stop and listen for a second, for just one second, and it's in those moments where I'm like, "Oh, th- these adults are, you know, it's easy for me to to condemn them. They're also incredibly familiar to me because, you know, I oh, recognize yeah. <laughs> them as the people I love and as myself, you know. And, of course, and, right? Oh, it's it's heartbreaking because while you're seeing them doing something that is so recognizable, you see, and I do not know how Karastami did this. It is a miracle of filmmaking and of, of directing a child. Ahmad sits there quietly, but his face is enough to bring tears to your eyes 
when he's watching the pain of his friend, when he's trying to get his mom to listen, there is so much concern on his face uh, uh, and, and, you know, dread that, oh man, I, I, I can't, I, I don't even, I don't even understand it, you know, as, as far as how you could, could convey that in a way that brings our attention to it and, and helps me to see it and see it, I think, so clearly and vividly. Um, in just this this heartbreaking way, I mean, it is, it is. This is a, a powerful portrayal of a, of a child who is in this conflict, and whose heart is so big that you just cheer for him to find his friend. You know, to it's it is a small thing, but he knows that it's it's soul crushing for his friend, um, and he doesn't want to witness that, and so he's going to do everything he can to 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 get out there, including, you know, uh, risk his own neck a little bit, you know, as, as the day goes longer and it starts to get dark outside, I'm like, <laughs> Ahmad, your mom is going to be ticked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where's the bread? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and where did he go? And, and I mean, again, I don't know, I don't know, you know, how parents kind of, uh, you know, helicoptered around their kids back in, you know, around of the late eighties versus nowadays, but you know, in, in, in our world, boy, your child leaves the house to run an errand and mm-hmm. he's not back several hours later. You know, we've got the helicopters and, and everybody, you know, is, is out, you know, there's, there's the uh, Amber alert and who knows what that can happen. So this is a different society and a different way of, of allowing kids to roam and explore and, and, and all of that. So you're right. You're, you're just kind of viewing it. But one of the interesting things is how Kuristami took these non-professional, non-acting children. Of course, you know, there's nothing quite like what we have in our country today of sort of a whole entertainment industry that's ready to take a precocious, you know, expressive child and turn them into a, a, a TV actor or something. I mean, he has to take ordinary kids who he's casting based on their face, you know, or their their ability to, you know, repeat a line or, or follow directions. But he's he's creating these emotions through different kinds of setups. But, but he's he's creating the feeling that he wants to convey without telling the child, now act like you're all concerned about your friend getting in trouble, you know? And it's just another really um, very subtle but very brilliant uh, indicator of Kurostami's insight and his talent. Uh, because, as you said, he's been making uh, movies for children this Kanoon, uh, I guess, is what the name of the organization. Uh, it's the Institute for the Intellectual Development of Children. Um, and so, again, part of the revolutionary government in, in Iran is like, how can we use media to help bring up our kids in the proper way? And so there's a didactic, uh, you know, kind of moral shaping thing that's going on under the aegis of of these films of being produced by this organization so and this is kuristami way before he ever expected that he'd be you know walking the red carpet at con and, and all that kind of thing he's just a functioning filmmaker who's got a job and an assignment and and so much grew out of this um primarily because of events that happened and that led to this making of of the next film that we'll be talking about. But here he's just basically creating scenarios to allow children to express things sometimes verbally but often more powerfully non-verbally through facial mm-hmm. expressions, body language, the, just the energy of of running up and down these alleys and over these, you know, trails to try to figure out where he's going, asking strangers, I'm looking for the child with, with this name do you know where they live and 
having to kind of get the runaround and you know make sense of these little clues these little hints that might be getting dropped or might be complete you know uh digressions and 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 misleading so yeah it's just it's basically just putting a child in this very confused um state of he's he's trying to accomplish a very simple task but running into all kinds of obstacles as well as just his own youth and naivete as far as Mm -hmm. not really understanding you know where he should go and and the fact that the society's you know fairly primitive being people don't have like you know street names and numbers for an address you can't just call them on the phone or or uh you know there's no central location to say hey somebody show me where i'm supposed to go here this is a this is a rustic little village where lots of people with the same last name live there because that's kind of how these societies developed you know they're all kind of related you know, <laughs> clans or whatever so just really interesting food for thought and then you know um and then there's the the final resolution which you know maybe we don't have to do a full spoiler but but ahmad uh commits another very empathetic act in order to bring it to sort of a a a resolve a climax which i think has uh that kind of uh, edifying uh, message, you know, of children, be considerate, be caring, be honest, be courageous. I think those are the sort of government approved messages that you get out of, you know, why do we focus on this Ahmad? What, what is admirable about him? And what does this teach our children? Uh, that's what kind of legitimizes the film from a government ministry standpoint. But there is also something just really um, warm and humane and uh, uplifting just watching the story unfold as simple as it is. And, you know, it seems so subversive, too, at the same time. Because oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the grandpa, when he runs past a few times, is like, oh, there goes our Ahmad. And the grandpa, you know, I guess thinking thinking for the best, uh, sends Ahmad, you know, stops him. Don't do this. Do you need to go get me some cigarettes? You know, he's got his own thing he needs for him to do. Not the right, bread, not right. his homework, not take the notebook to his friend. Go get me some cigarettes. Well, it turns out grandpa has cigarettes. He did that in order we want the kid to be brought up well, he says to the guy, you know, sitting next to him. And the way that he thinks that is, is to just, you know, kind of govern his life and have him do things he doesn't want to do, even need needless things. Um, and, you know, th- that's the question that that this film is supposed to answer, is bringing up the children well. Well, here's an adult figure. All the adult figures are not doing that. <laughs> and you can kind of, uh, uh, you know, push that over to maybe the authority figures are just, you know, off. And in the end, uh, Ahmad's active empathy is you know could be viewed as cheating and um you know not to spoil it too much but could be viewed as as cheating for his friend and so i i love that this still was the conclusion and was still put out there and no one no you know i can imagine so many of the figures in our government right now saying you know here in america oh we're not putting that out you know <laughs> we've got to show the well, adults as at least being somewhat knowledgeable and you know, yeah. we we don't want this to to be taken as uh, in, endorsing what Ahmad did, and it just you know it, it is it's subversive in in its own way, and, and chooses humanity and empathy over you know even doing your own homework. <laughs> yeah, well, you know the the grandpa's wisdom. You know, children should just you know follow their orders. You know, the teacher saying, "How many times did I tell you to use a notebook?" 
three times today to say it again three times like i should i should never have to ask you more than once you know that's that's basically the the imprint of authoritarianism mm-hmm. right it's like you do you just do what you're told sit down shut up follow orders and i have to imagine that if if you buy into that mindset if you're kind of sympathetic to that kind of authoritarian uh control or even if you aspire to be that person or you feel like well that's how i was raised and i'm going to just pass it along well you can watch this film and think oh that teacher's just doing his job and that grandpa yeah that's right these kids these days they need to be told what to do and 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 you're not going to necessarily view them as you know being exaggeratedly you know um, yeah yeah. you know uh power hungry or, or or driven by their ego because what they're saying is kind of the received conventional wisdom however if you if you recognize as as i think maybe we both do that the there's a very clearly abusive tendency that is very close to the surface and actually crosses that line several times in these encounters and and has a damaging impact on on children and on a society as a whole then you see those same figures as examples of of a problem that is certainly not just unique to Iranian society, but I think Kuristami is very subtly portraying as like, yeah, the here here we go. It's it reminds me of some of the things that we saw like in Czech New Wave films that were made under the supervision and approval of the of the communist government, but they just again approach that that place of satire and and of kind of portraying the bureaucracy and the ineptitude um, without, you know, going too far. Well, of course, they did end up going too far, according to the Soviets. But, you know, they're just treading that line. And because you're having to work within that that discipline of of repression and and the fear of censorship, you get really clever (laughs) in, in your ability to express a message that has that subversive edge without being, you know, brazenly defiant and and certain to get you into trouble. Yeah. Well, are are we ready to see how this chestnut grows? <laughs> we probably should, just because. Yeah, I mean, again, there's lots to analyze and explore, but uh, yeah, it that it's a, it's a great introduction to the trilogy, and and probably going to be. Um, in fact, it might be my favorite, just in the sense of the sheer warmth and enjoyment that I get from watching it. Um, and yeah, yeah, so it's, it's a great story. One to show the kids, um, you know, all ages welcome. Obviously you got to have a kid who can read some subtitles, but even, <laughs> man, even without reading the subtitles, understand, there's so uh, much expressed. Persian. Well, yeah. Well, not, that, that too, not, right? Yeah. Not my kids. <laughs> no, sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, so it, interestingly, the, the uh, Ahmad, uh, and the friend uh, who is, you know, we hear his name all the time through the movie because Ahmad just keeps asking people, where is Mohammed Reza Namatsada? Where is Mohammed Reza Namatsada? You know, that um, that child, his, you know, the, his classmate is his brother in real life. Ahmad is played by an actor or a child. He's not an actor. You know, he's a school child who just happened to be chosen for the role. But Ahmad is played by Babak Ahmadpour. And Mohammad Reza Namatsada is played by Babak's brother, Ahmad Ahmadpour. And so uh, Karostami does give um, Babak his brother's name to play in the film. And the supplements talk about some of the other ways that he gets these responses out of these children. They're not always reading from a script or acting out a scene. You know, I love the moment at the end where um, Ahmad 
walks into the classroom and is asked a couple of questions and the looks on his face and it's like, man, how did he get the kids to do that? Well, he asked him some questions when he walked in that were just school questions, maybe a math problem. And the first one was easy. So he was able to give a very quick answer. And the second one deliberately was more difficult. So you have to see Ahmad stop and think about it before giving his next answer. In the in the context of the movie, it's very powerful, um, you know, because you're meant to think he's thinking about, you know, all of his quest and what he's doing at school that day. But, you know, that's just the brilliance of Kiarostami, uh, kind of the magic of filmmaking that he's doing there. But, uh, but nevertheless, one of the other ways was to have brothers play these parts. But not too long after this film was produced and put out um, in June of 1990, there was a devastating earthquake in that area of, of Iran uh, that killed uh, 50,000 people, including 20,000 children. And Kiarostami found himself, you know, very concerned for the actors, in particular these these children, you know, Ahmad and Babak Ahmadpur, um, and didn't know if they had survived, didn't necessarily, probably didn't think that they did, but uh, finds himself going on a on a journey of his own to see if he can find these kids that had, um, you know, made this impact and in in a way also made made a, a bigger name for him. Um, clearly, this was a a film people got to know in Iran um, over the, 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 you know, between the time of it, its uh, production and the earthquake. And so he, he takes his son, his, you know, this is in real life, he takes his son um, and they travel through that region to try to find these children. And that turns out to be the, the setup for the next film in the trilogy, uh, and life goes on, which was released in 1992, a few years, you know, after the earthquake, um, and just a, 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 a again a, very, a fairly humane uh, premise, but this is where also Kiarostami starts to play with, you know, narrative, and he has actors playing himself, um, doing something he actually did. And, uh, you know, it gets a little more, um, a little more meta and uh, interesting in that way, while still, I think, retaining uh, some of the warmth and the heart that we get in, in Where's the Friend's House. Uh, what are your, what are your opening thoughts on, on this one? Sure. Okay. Well, you know, there's some interesting context here. So the earthquake happened the, on Kiristami's 50th birthday. So, you know, whether, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's into the numerology of it all or, or it was just this uncanny coincidence, uh, but there are some interesting comments about how that earthquake was sort of a turning point in his life. Uh, at that, up until that point, he, I think a son even said he was just bitter and had kind of a sour attitude just about life. And, and again, whether that's related to, uh, being this kind of art, artistic, intuitive, expressive person, having to live in a society that's pretty rigid and pretty, you know, uptight and, and pretty um, quick to disapprove of anything that strays too far from the, the party line, uh, or whether it was just kind of a midlife thing that he was going through or whatever. But but this earthquake was was a truly cataclysmic 
event, obviously, in the when you look at the, the number of casualties and the suffering and the destruction. But uh, it's also brought out in one of, I think, maybe the commentary track that this earthquake almost followed right on the heels of a very devastating war uh, between Iran and Iraq throughout most of the 1980s, uh, back when... Um, Saddam Hussein was a good guy in the United States because he was fighting against the wicked Iranians, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, lots of suffering, lots of death and devastation happened because of that war. Again, civilians on both sides of those borders paid tremendous prices as well as the, the fighting men themselves. And so there is this real question. I mean, so you've got the Iranian Revolution in the late 70s, then war erupts between Iraq and Iran, two pretty major military forces and all kinds of devastation. And then on top of that, once the war, I think, had been pretty much wound down or settled into a truce or whatever, now you've got this devastating earthquake. So it's like, what in the world is going on here? I mean, how much suffering does a people have to endure? And, and, and again, you know, putting it in theological terms, you know, why is God punishing us? What has happened here? So, you know, you know, we, we, we did a revolution that's, you know, trying to get to the, you know, the, the, the important principles of, of, of faith and belief and, 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 uh, you know, putting God in his rightful place, Allah, you know. And so so all of those kind of contextual questions are happening. Now, Kurostami is not, you know, throwing that up there on the screen in, in blatant terms. Do, but do you, if you just think about it, yeah. I, I don't want to interrupt I, your complete train of thought, yeah. but I think you, you have sure. done a, a superb job of introducing one of the supplements to the set mm-hmm. is 1989's mm-hmm. Homework, a film that Kurostami made. Oh, yeah, made. sure after where's yep. the friend's house and before the earthquake that does it's about homework it's about children you know why did you do your homework why didn't you do your homework but mm-hmm. it's a it's also shows you that these children are concerned about Saddam and the war and that comes out yeah. very much and i think those ideals you're just talking about really start to to it, homework is powerful to me because very in very subtle ways it shows that this the, the revolution you know you got these kids doing these acts and you've got them memorizing their lines and you've got them also saying my dream job is to be a soldier so i can go kill saddam and i don't think right. that's accidental on karostami's part and so i just wanted to kind of throw that in there it's a worthwhile supplement another karostami film in this set that both you know comes from the homework and doing your homework but does get into a lot of these other issues that you're you're discussing in the context here yeah well yeah and it really reinforces the 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 treatment of the teacher towards the student and 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 since it's and so many young boys are interviewed in homework you recognize you know how different temperaments respond to this type of treatment i mean the one boy who's just crying when his friend steps mm-hmm. out of the picture because he's just expecting the the worst mm-hmm. you know he's mm-hmm. going to get beaten or abused or whatever i mean so it's like you really again coming from my frame of reference and social services i'm like oh my gosh these these children are traumatized this is horrible lifting up but, his fingers it's, every it's time real. he speaks kind of like we see yeah. Ahmad do in where's yeah. the friend's house that that um, asking for license or permission to even answer oh, a question they've the, been asked directly. 
Right. The teacher says, don't speak until you're spoken to. I mean, he's, he's basically clamping down to shut up until I call on you, right? So you have to very meekly even put up your hand because it might even be out of line to be even asked for permission to speak. You, know, you never know uh, when you're going to get the snapback like that. But anyway, so you've got the context of, of this, you know, devastating earthquake. Uh, and then you've got, you've got Kuristami, you know, because he's casting other people in his own role. Um, and, and, it's it's not playing games. He's he's you know he was encouraged to make this anecdote into a movie, and it it became kind of an interesting opportunity to portray the earthquake. But he's he is recreating some of the 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 rubble fields and the devastation. He he's talking to people who are again true survivors of all of that, and can give voice to just you know how hard and, and hellish their life has been. I mean, I, and I you know. Put, to put this uh, this episode into sort of a, a time context, I'm thinking about all the, you know, weather related damage that has been experienced in parts of the USA this past week, down in Texas in particular, with all the winter storms and the, the pipes bursting and people without water, and all of a sudden it's like, out of nowhere comes this very serious calamity that's going to take a while to recover from, you know, and people have already died now. The casualties here are nothing compared to you know the tens of thousands that that perished in this uh, you know, massive earthquake. But it's just a little bit of a reminder of how fragile life can be and how unexpected, uh, you know, y- y- the disruption is when, when, you know, natural forces kind of just, you know, literally, you know, pull the earth out from underneath us and you're stuck in a survival mode uh, when maybe up until that moment, things were you know fairly calm and, and predictable and ordinary well and this is another film that uh, criterion has a different translation than what i'd probably originally mm-hmm. heard of uh, it, it's often been translated into english as uh well, well let me first say the title again in in that criterion uses which is and life goes on that's definitely part of this film you know it's it's stated by some it's of the a characters. quote from yeah. a mm-hmm. right 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 and and then there's another title, uh, the, again, the one that I think was more common beforehand, which is Life and Nothing More, uh, which, you know, both of these have, you know, different feelings to me. And that's a lot of what Kiarostami is exploring in this, is here are these people who have just gone through this devastating time, and he's searching for these kids still, you know, he hopes that they have survived, but in the process, he's running into people and they're going about their their chores. Or, you know, as, when the film comes to a close, they're about to sit down to watch the uh, World Cup soccer game. This is five days after the uh, earthquake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And everyone that he talks to are, are like, yeah, I lost my little sister, my aunt, my, you know, everybody. Everybody has lost people close to them, not just, oh, I know my neighbor, but like, direct family members or parents or you know yeah we mm-hmm. were at my uncle's house and he died um you know we tried to drag him out but he was dead when we got to the street you know just all and these are kids that he's talking to adults and yet you wouldn't think it if he just was driving past them because their lives are going on they're not sitting there you know uh wailing in the streets they they've moved on and and that's that's something there but it's also an interesting question about how does life go on 
And, you know, a lot of them, well, it's God's will, and they seem to have a positive attitude, or maybe, you know, but we can also look at that and be, that's fairly nihilistic, too. Um, and I think that's where the other title, Life and Nothing More, can come about, because we, we even have, you know, the, 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 the now very famous, very imp- imprinted on our mind scene of Hussein and his newlywed wife, and he's kind of talking, yeah, we have to keep going. We know, you know, the the people who died in the earthquake didn't know they were about to die in an earthquake. Um, we could die in the next one, so you know, we keep going. We, we're gonna, we're going to start our family. We're going to to, you know, have kids, and and keep going. You know, and just all these different philosophies that are floating around here. Um, that must be very, so much on on your mind when you when you travel to a region that's just been devastated, and you see the survivors continuing on. You know how do they do it? Why do they do it? What's their perspective? And how are so many of these people uh, doing this? You know, a, a amazing feat of of going on. And part of it's well, that's what time forces you to do. <laughs> you know, the y- 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 yeah. life life does life does carry on somehow, and. So, do you have any thoughts on the two titles or their implications? Yeah, well, I I guess I kind of prefer And Life Goes On because to me it feels like that seems to extend more from the, you know, what I take away from the movie. Uh, Life and Nothing More almost seems to be, I don't know, uh, what's the word? A bit of an uh, an overstatement, almost kind of pompous. Although I do understand that that's maybe a more accurate literal translation, but I think that's where you get into the subtleties of what do the words mean versus how does the phrase play in its native language? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, like uh, Ozu's "I was blankety blank," but you know, that's a Japanese kind of expression uh, that is like "I did something," but you know, there's a all this sort of more that's kind of implied or tagged on to the title. So, um, it, it, to me, one of the things that, that, that I guess you know, what you're we're just saying kind of stirs up in my my own thinking here is is you know Kuristami, the cultured you know cosmopolitan, the intellectual, the the man from Tehran who's got now these connections going into film festivals and uh, access to other societies, uh, even getting international attention and, and praise as a great artist. And now here he is really going back to the roots here, the, the salt of the earth common folk of uh, these villagers who, you know, don't have anywhere near the kind of uh, life experience, you know, globetrotting and, and traveling in the circles that Kuristami has been introduced to. Um, and they're showing a lot of resilience. Uh, now, is that is that just kind of because they're just so simple that, uh, you know, they're you know, kind of like these beasts just going about their business, making sure they, they've scrounged up their next meal? And Or is there something noble to celebrate in there? Or, 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 or is he thinking, you know, they should be they should be wailing in the streets. They should be decrying the cosmic injustice of it all. And, you know, you're in a house, the beams start falling, they're smashing people to your left, to your right, but you're the one who was able to just stand up and say, oh, I'm okay. What's that all about? Like, why Why did Why did that fall that way, but not on me? Why, why did my little brother die, but I'm here still alive? I mean, those are huge questions and, and ultimately, you know, irresolvable mysteries mm-hmm. uh, that, that you could never say, this is why, this is the explanation of it all. And so you've got to figure out how do you cope? <laughs> you know, how do you rationalize what's fundamentally irrational and, and 
ineffable. And so, you know, in, in these really massive um, sort of life and death philosophical dilemmas that the circumstances put before us, uh, we're also, you know, drawn to focus on just very simple human activities and the fact that, you know, while Kurostami is looking for two particular boys, you know, that's just a coincidence of the fact that he worked with them, got to know them, made this movie with them. The earthquake just happened to hit that particular region and, and now he's hoping that they survived was well, like, well, do they, don't they? It's <laughs> you're you're kind of left hanging at the end of it all there, but that's okay. It's it's that that journey that he took and uh, you know, and the fact that again, he's leaving us a lot of space to you know, paint into the picture what we think it's all about or how these experiences maybe just relate to our own uh, journey and encounters in life. And so, yeah, it's 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 very simple. It's very basic, but it's also expansive and and you know um, universal in its in its implications. Well, and I have to to say, I, I can't imagine how it must have been in 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 real time and in real life. But when his son sees the little boy, I saw the little boy from from the movie, and it turns out not to be Ahmad or you know his brother. Uh, the, it doesn't turn out to be the ones that they're looking for. Um, it's the boy whose back hurt in the movie. And when you see him walk out, mm-hmm. and you, you you see that boy again, that his life has gone on. Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know these people, <laughs> but I was so relieved that even just he had yeah. survived and that his life goes on. It, it, I don't know. There, there really is a lot in, in this, and and uh, I, I, but I was so happy, and I didn't have the first clue um, whether the boys that he was looking for had survived, and you know, was a little bit. I I kind of thought maybe they didn't, but at the end of the film, the first time I watched it, mm-hmm. since you yeah. never know, yeah, yeah. Um, it ends on a very different grace he, note. You kind of expect to see them, you know, in, in in the background or something like that might be the way that that he gets through that. But they remain elusive, kind of like you know, searching for the friend's house. Some people will say, "Oh, they passed by here just a minute ago," or you know, no one confirms they've died. Some people are suggesting they they've lived, but turns out to never be um, who they're looking for. And you know, by the end, I had no idea. And so it ends on a very different, and I think very appropriate grace note. You know, there's the flower and the homework mm-hmm. in the first movie. In this one, he passes someone who's walking up these windy hills, windy, windy hills, and carrying supplies. And the the person actually asks, hey, can I get a ride? And he just drives past. And then he gets stuck a ways in front. And this is a pretty long shot. I mean, Kiarostami definitely lets us sit here with all of this. Uh, you know, the director uh, playing Kiarostami himself, in a way, gets the car can't proceed. And the man comes eventually and helps push him and, and get him moving again and carries on, you know, goes up the hill, starts his own trek up the hill. And we, we, we see the director proceed again and even pass him again. <laughs> and you're like, man, stop being such a jerk. He just helped you. And then stop and pick him up. And I don't know what all that means, but there was something about, hey, I'm looking for these people that I know, but here's some humanity even with this person that I don't know. You know, there's a connection there. 
there's um there's some good acts and some um some help from from the other person first but there's a connection there even with this person that he didn't know and initially was going to completely pass by and you can just imagine they're going to have a conversation in that car because this is a Karastami movie. <laughs> they're going to get to know each other, and yeah. he's going to to yeah. find some things to appreciate. And I, I I love that ending, as as frustrating as it is because you don't you know hear what they say and you don't get to know if the kids have survived or not. I just really liked that very different ending that focuses on people that you know the, the people again and the people you don't know. Well, exactly, and and I think that almost in any other filmmaking culture, certainly if this was a Hollywood movie, you would have had that encounter, or you would have at least learned the boys didn't make it, or one did and the other. I mean, they Kuristami's willingness, his courage, if you will, his pretension, if you will, whatever, to just end the story this way rather than drawing it to that resolution, that audience-satisfying answering of the question – uh, to me, I think is is a very you know courageous and very truthful way of telling the story because that's how often life does go on. It's like you know the conclusion that you're looking for or the that you're expecting that would sort of tidy all of this up with a nice little bow on top just doesn't present itself there. Life goes on, and uh, you know there's 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 wisdom in there that that's it, there's something profound about that even though it doesn't check the boxes for what we often turn to movies to do which is set up the dilemma you know bring us through the different motions uh, whether this is suspense whether this is romance whether this is a you know comedy uh, a war movie whatever the case may be and then bring us to that moment of finality that says okay after all the forces have been unleashed here's what happens and <laughs> it's like we're, we're really kind of left in midstream um and and again that's where i get where i i, I like the title and life goes on because mm-hmm. i think that's exactly what you're seeing happening here yeah, the other one just sounds a little, even has a little bit of a negative vibe to it. Life and nothing more. There's a little bit more nihilism in that statement for me from what we see in yeah, the movie. So yeah. I'm with you. The, the, and life goes on reflects more what I take from the movie. We're we're fairly yeah, I don't positive think, I don't people think... though, David. That may just be us, oh well, but... sure. <laughs> well, and, you know, life and nothing more makes it sound like this is a much more encyclopedic statement about what life is you know this is the essence of this is the totality of well not exactly it's this is a slice it's a it's a very it's a very engaging and and uh meaningful slice of life but it's really it's just one of so many moments that could be portrayed they're big moments again the earthquake the survivors the um the various ways of coping and then you know kuristami's own personal reflections as he's taking his son through this and and you know setting up the antenna for the soccer game and and uh, the different conversations with people along the way it's just yeah again watch this movie in a couple years other things i'm sure will jump out that's pretty much my my approach with this whole trilogy here is to just kind of keep it keep it not too distant uh and re-encounter re-engage every so often (laughs) So, so Jeffrey Cheshire, who who has a supplement on on the the disc where he's in conversation and talking about these films, he's also uh, the one who wrote the essay. It's a long essay too in the in the booklet that comes with the the um, or sorry, I said Jeffrey Cheshire. I mean Godfrey Cheshire. 
Godfrey Cheshire's the one who wrote the 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 essay and has some some supplements in there. I don't even know who Jeffrey Cheshire is. Am I thinking of Jeffrey Chaucer? I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, there we go. Um, but he he writes in 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 his essay that you know each of these films can be taken on its own and that that they stand alone. Well, I'm here to tell you that I do not know how, and you you seem to be uh, my, my witness number one, I do not know how you yeah. can watch the next film in this trilogy and get too much out of it if you don't have the other films in, in your background. Uh, the next one is Through the Olive Trees. Uh, came out in 1994, and it's another outgrowth of a film. You know, it's it's a piece, again, of of the film we just watched and Life Goes On that grows and grows into this, you know, completely different thing. But I think it does so in a way that I just, I, I don't, I, I don't know what I would have gotten out of it had I even watched it four or five times without having these other films, you know, in, in, in the background, uh, the characters come up again. It's just, it's, it's, it's just a, I'm not sure where that comes from. So I am very curious, David, and I've introduced, I think, the last two films. I apologize for that. That was not my sure. my, oh, that's fine. my intent, but I, I would love to hear your introduction to this film and maybe mm-hmm. talk on that just a little bit. Yeah, well, I said, well, Through the Olive Trees, it, it starts with a kind of a scene of a, of a man. He's a kind of swarthy guy who's, you know, very strong presence and in some ways kind of reminded me of Raimu when we talked about the Marseille trilogy, this kind of this big burly guy. And, and he's out there talking to a group of young women, uh, in their black shadows, the the kind of, uh, kind of robes with the, with the head coverings. And, and so, you know, it has the effect of, you know, he's kind of this distinctive individual amongst all these young women who are, rendered somewhat anonymous except for the faces that all that's all you can see and he's just talking about making this movie and he's kind of doing a little bit of a you know explanation and a, a casting call if you will and and so you know we're just plunged right in the heart of it and so again it's like what's happening here okay so this is a filmmaker and he's going to make a movie uh, but but really the this whole story grows out of a, another observational moment that Kurostami noticed when he was making and life goes on uh, about an encounter between uh, a young man and a young woman who were almost really just incidental players you know they're 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 important in in, in the context of and life goes on but it, they're not like the main subjects of the film for an extended period of time but he noticed there's a kind of a, a little bit of a conflict that is happening between Hussein an actor and a, another young woman uh, on the set and that there was some some work that needed to be done just to kind of get them to get along with each other so that they could go ahead and, and proceed to film the scene. And that, for reasons I'm still not even sure I completely understand, was an engaging enough um, sort of nugget for him to say, let's make a movie <laughs> that is largely based on that conflict. And so, so basically, you know, so, so you basically just have this, the, the first portion of the film is, is really just sort of setting up the process of the movie making, uh, that's going on. And so he's, you know, he's, you know, getting even more into the meta because now we've got this, this actor and, uh, I'll have to look his name up here. Are you talking about Hussein? Hussein? Uh, no, not Hussein, but the director. Oh, Muhammad Ali um, Keshavards. Yeah. 
Right. So so he's he's the director, and you will see the the actor who sort of played in the Kurostami role in Life Goes On. You'll see him pop up every now and again, because this is like the filming of and Life Goes On is kind of the conceit here. <laughs> so you've got that. This is the the nesting structure. We're going to have a movie about the filmmaking of and Life Goes On, which is the pursuit of the two boys who were depicted in where's the friend's house. So that's, that's this little kind of this little cascading chain of, of inter, inter, interconnections linking these three films. Um, and then Kurostami himself makes very, they're not even cameos. He's just sort of observed flashing by as a, sort of a crew member. So, so that's that. But then you get into the, the tension between Hussein and this young woman, Terezada, I'm thinking that's her name from memory. I don't have it written in front of me, but he, um, he, he's kind of courting her. He, he thinks that she's the one that he wants to marry. And yet, and, and partly it's because she's just lost her whole family. Like she's an orphan now. She's a young, you know, young adult woman, um, of marriageable age, but her family has just been snatched away from her as a result of this earthquake. And so she is again, dealing with her own trauma and the shock and, and horror of what's just happened. And on the set of this film that's being made, Hussein is pretty persistently going after her because there was an encounter previously where she gave him a look that he interpreted as she's interested in me. <laughs> and so, the marketplace. yeah, so <laughs> at, at the marketplace, right. And so, and so now you've got this kind of um, an observation of sort of young men and, and their, um, quickness to get infatuated with a, a smile from a pretty woman or a, somebody who captures their interest and, and and his zealous pursuit of of her affection and getting her to express whether or not she's willing to accept his offer of courtship and eventual marriage you know and then you get into the class things because he's an illiterate um you know, uneducated, you know, peasant man, uh, and and he's not necessarily seen as good marriage material by the girl's grandmother, who's also kind of an interesting and important figure in this film. So, so yeah, so now you've got this just kind of romantic tension. Uh, you've got a suspense of a sort as will she respond to his entreaties or not? You know, because she's not very communicative. You know, and then you've got sort of the the dimensions of the filmmaking because you've got a particular scene that is just a really almost quick throwaway moment in the context of and life goes on but we see that same thing seen reenacted i don't know what five six seven times it's just you know as as they keep messing it up and and uh, and so you've got a little bit of commentary on the um the process of movie making in the midst of very difficult circumstances i mean people who are dealing with you know the shock and and again and Life Goes On is portrayed as a film that was made within days of the actual earthquake, when that's not actually the case, but there's a simulation going on there. So again, it's just all these different spin-offs of, of things that you can think about while you're watching this movie, how it was put together, the uh, you know underlying conflicts and dynamics of it. And, and then again, just Kurostami, um, in some ways having fun with the art and the artifice of it all. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very multifaceted, um, filmmaking of a, of a pretty high level. Um, again, it's, it's so 
abstract and, and abstruse that it may not be to everybody's <laughs> liking. Uh, I could imagine this might be the least favorite for a lot of folks, and I guess I'd probably have to rank it as number three in terms of the overall you know pleasure or whatever, but it's still a really fascinating piece of work. Yeah. That's my intro. <laughs> <laughs> so much there. And yeah, the... It's probably my least favorite too, but I still really love it, and I still really have fun with it. If it, mm-hmm. if yeah, exactly. There is the the absolute playfulness, and Cheshire again in the essay talks about that some of this can be seen as uh, Karostami's response to critics of his, uh, you know, of and life goes on, um, you know, of being too too much into the game and and using Western music, and and he's like, man, it looks like he kind of doubles down. Including with the the fellow that he chooses to be his stand-in this time, you know the the director in this case is a is a very famous, uh, well-known Iranian uh, cinema and theater actor, Muhammad Ali Keshavars. I don't know him. I know that only from the supplements right. and and things that I'm reading here. Um, but he died last year. This gentleman, he died. He was 90 years old. Died in June of 2020, and. Um, you know he was, but but well known to to people who would be watching it. You know why in and life goes on. Does Karostami choose? Is the economist? You know someone he'd met that doesn't even know how to drive <laughs> to do this road movie and stand in as the director, and then here in this one he chooses a a very well known um, actor to play the director, and you know yeah there is a lot of that game going on. And it wouldn't mean very much to me. I would find it fun and interesting, but it wouldn't mean very much if there weren't also some of this heart and even some of the the, the difficulties of trying to understand what really is going on in this relationship. Um, the Hossein talks a lot, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. we don't really know very well um, what uh, her name is Tahera, I think. Uh, we don't really okay, know yeah. her view on all of this. She, I do like that the first actor who was going to play that role couldn't speak around her, stammered around women, he says, but certainly around her. So he can't perform his lines because she just has some effect on him. I don't know if that's real or if that was just, um, you know, Kiarostami putting that in there in order to heighten this even more to, you know, there's some conflict here between these these men and and women here. Well, well, I think if you if you think about the really highly patriarchal and and uh, gender segregated society of Iran, uh, where young men and young women are really brought up very separate from each other. I mean, we talked about that in the school. All of a sudden, you know, as a you know young virile 19, 20, 21 year old guy, now you're looking into the face of a of a really beautiful, attractive young woman. I mean that that can be a fairly startling experience if it's not something you're used to you know and 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 uh, and it it, it it really it gets almost down to, to biologics like he certainly didn't see that coming but it's like oh my goodness she's really quite striking and and it just stirs up this biochemical stuff you know, that might be hard for the brain to process you know especially when you're being asked to act you know and, and perform and these are not professionals who've been trained to do that you know so it's it's a uh, quite a load to process 
David, that there's a lot of euphemisms going on there. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but uh, but but yeah, there, there's there's this, there is a lot in this film, and, and I'm sure a, a lot to be said about the the gender dynamics because one of the you know one of the director's assistants, primary assistants, is Mrs. Shiva. Uh, you know, and she drives around and does everything he asks, and so she's kind of his, you know, his go-to woman um, to get a lot of things done. And she runs a lot of the set. And there's, you know, I don't know enough about Iranian culture at this time to know how it would be taken at that point. But even Hussein keeps on telling um, the director, "Hey, we're not quite, you know, she doesn't have to call me Mister Hussein." We, we don't, you know, that's an older generation. We don't, she doesn't need to do that in order to kind of make things move on. Uh, they keep cutting at one part because she keeps calling him Hussein instead of Mr. Hussein. And uh, it, it, there's just these right. changes well, she's working through her own... in culture. Mm-hmm. That well, she's on. working Go through... Go ahead, sorry. Well, well no, sorry. She's working through her own resentments. You know, she does not want to be told to put this honorific, you know, title uh, addressing this man who's probably kind of getting on her nerves you know <laughs> and again she's she's just lost her parents i mean it's just like it's kind of unbelievable that you're asking her to do this acting thing i mean and 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 the other the other big flub is uh hossein being told you've got to say that you lost 65 relatives not 25 like which is a kind of an embellishment like you know, 25 isn't quite enough to get the heart-wrenching pathos from the audience that i'm looking for so we're going to say you lost Mm -hmm. 65 relatives which is like a you know just mind-blowing staggering number numbers of of people that that are part of your extended family that are are dead now it's like do you really have to pour it on again these are just little fascinating little speculative points that may not even you know be all that significant they just lead the mind in interesting i I feel like he's you know, Karostami is is pulling the the covers off a little bit and saying, "Hey, you know, I I always say, you you lie a lot in cinema in order to tell truth, and I think that yeah. that's part of uh, him uh, showing that, uh, which some will criticize and others will will say, yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, you are creating something here um, to communicate and." Maybe saying twenty five is actually not going to get your point across, or or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, just so much going on. And then you're right. What what does this poor young woman um, think about all of this? She does show up. You know, there are moments, moments where you're like, maybe she does like him and just doesn't want to, you know, confront her grandma. But there are so many other moments where you're like, no, she hates him and doesn't want to talk to him, doesn't want to be around him, and he just doesn't get it. There's so many of those moments that it's, you know, it's, 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 I'm sure the film reads differently today, even than it did, you know, five years ago, where I feel like we're more sensitive to, you know, this is persistent, but it's actually uh, just being uh, an entitled male here. And he does get into that a little bit. Some of the things he says when he's Mm -hmm. following her. I mean, he does not shut up when they're going through the olive trees there at the end, um, and you know, saying junk like, "Hey, I can, I can get another, another wife. There are other women who are, you know, better than you and oh, more good-looking right. than you." And it's like, man, what, what are you? 
Are you trying to win here? <laughs> well, he's he's just he's basically just riffing through the the whole right. male psychology <laughs> playbook. Like, hey, I, I could do better than you, you know. I'm do, I'm doing you a favor, you know. What's the that matter? last <laughs> line didn't work? Let's do this yeah, this yeah. one. <laughs> right, you're right. He's he's just throwing the whole toolbox at her to see if it'll get a response. So part of it is also just very amusing. And again, then you're you're also looking at the the specific uh, sort of relations between the sexes in a different society i mean is she just being demure maybe her accepting his entreaty so quickly would be a a big impropriety a a big faux pas like you don't just say yes uh that quickly or or (laughs) i'm thinking of mr collins in uh with uh, elizabeth bennett in pride and prejudice i know you're supposed to say no so I will come back next right. week to ask you again. <laughs> right. There, there's a certain order of things. And so, you know, until the courtship has proceeded for a certain length of time, perhaps there's just, you know, and, and you know, so you know, maybe, maybe he's being really out of line to be that outspoken, that, that plain, uh, you know, I, you know, we just don't know those cultural dynamics. And then you do, right. You put it in the context of, of today, me too. And, and, and just the, you know, the rethinking of, um, you know, what does a traditional man do to show his affection and, and, you know, just <laughs> again, lots of interesting, um, food for thought, uh, just to sort of observe, those dynamics as expressed in a different time and place, which I always just enjoy just contemplating how people connect with each other or it is as often the case, how they fail to connect with each other under some <laughs> different circumstances. Yeah. Did you ever come across anything in your reading or viewing that helped us to understand the, the, the reality underneath this situation um, I know that what I keep reading is that he recognized there was a, an actual conflict between two of his actors, and that's where it tends to stop. I don't know if they were trying to, you know, if, if it was at all the the scenario that's played out in this film. <coughs> I don't know if they ended up getting married, if they really were kind of a couple, or anything like that. Right. I don't even know if uh, Kiarostami... Well, he must know because he hires them again to come back and play the same roles and go through that agony yeah, potentially. Yeah. <laughs> well, a, again, yeah, he's he's an artist kind of flexing some of his own, um, you know, ideas and, and his ability to construct these scenarios and to present them to his audiences. So, yeah, sleight of hand, you know, it, it's, it's just kind of, you know, uh, the same germ of an idea or an impression that drive somebody to write a short story or to compose a novel or to, uh, you know, you know, compose a, a piece of music that yeah, there's an event that happens, an observation. It says, oh, that's that's interesting. Let's play with that. Let's spin it out into a given medium. And voila, there, there you go. So I, I think that's kind of what happened here. Now, what made that conflict or even the rehearsal and the multiple takes of that particular scene why did he choose that you know where he's going up you know down the stairs putting on his white socks after having this little you know flare-up of an argument about where the clothes are and and then she you know waters the carnations and the water spills onto the director a little bit and then she throws him a as a bag of coins or something there's some kind of a, a, a little parcel that he catches 
and and they each say their lines and <laughs> and then the director has to finally settle for the take without her saying Mr. Hussein because she's clearly shown her refusal to do it without without you know stating the refusal in so many words she's been very clearly been given the direction <laughs> and she very clearly has decided not to say that word and so now he's got to make the editorial decision do we just wrap it because it's not that huge of a problem i mean the director wants to have it his way and yet he has to kind of <laughs> accept what he's got and and that's uh, that's another thing that comes through the supplements is that you know kirstami uh, he made you know maybe he wrote a script but a lot of times they were more just treatments and that while he's on the set and working with his non-professional cast he's having to improvise um try different things to get the kind of visual image or the emotive response that he's looking for so he will take a picture that a child likes and then to make him cry he'll tear it up in front of his eyes it's like that has nothing to do with what happened in the movie but it got the emotional response and i'm sure he's doing the same types of things mm -hmm. here as he's he's directing a version of himself who's directing a different a different version of himself uh, recreating a scene from several years earlier uh, when he went to explore in the aftermath of a huge natural disaster. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you got all these layers of, of artifice and of composition and of deliberate intention, some of which maybe are chosen because of they're truly profound. Some of them may be somewhat arbitrary, random, whimsical, uh, but that's just what he's chosen because that's what he can do. Well, and, and uh, you, you brought up something I hadn't thought about before, and that's, you know, she, he has to settle for the take that he gets. She is not going to say Mr. And it's not because she's stupid. Yeah. It's not because she doesn't understand. She's just not going to do it. So he has to settle for that. And I think that he's showing here, here's, here's me manipulating uh, in all kinds of ways. And sometimes unable to do so. A truth pops out, you know, <laughs> regardless of my attempts to, to, to get it to play out a certain way and, and settle for it. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty remarkable um, project, uh, I would say, with the last film that I that I think really really does really does pay off in a, in a in a fun way. I don't think it, it quite strikes me with the same heart as the other two films, um, you know, and possibly because I don't really want, you know, I, I'm kind of on her side and don't really think that his ovations are being. Uh, received the way he thinks they are but it's still fun and touching and interesting and 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 you do wonder how much of that is just that she's not supposed to so she she is flattered again when she doesn't she turn the page of the book and that kind of gives him just a moment of hope um how much of that is her really kind of trying to indicate a little bit of her own will um versus all these other things that are maybe more expected of her and so she does them i don't i don't know but I'm yeah oh, yeah. Go ahead. Where where is her where where is her autonomy? I mean, she's a young woman with a very prescripted role in life. A lot of social expectations hanging over her head. This is one area where she has a little bit of control. Uh, again, she's she's managing her own grief, uh, and and I love the suspense that Karastami builds over these stupid little things like will she turn the page <laughs> or not? You know, but it's very but you, well done. You really. <laughs> Oh, right. You totally get caught up in it. You know? Why doesn't and, she and, drink and, the tea? And, 
right, right. Yeah, he he offers it to her very nicely, and 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 the same with the final walk and that long shot. You know, will she turn around? What will happen when she does? If she does, or will she just keep on walking? And then, and you know, and then there is that sort of pivotal moment right at the very end there. Um, but you still don't know exactly yeah. what happened. I mean, it, there's a reaction. There's a thing that happens, and we'll let the viewers discover it for themselves. Yeah. But um, it doesn't really resolve a whole lot. You can draw lots of different interpretations out of what we all see, the, the same images on the screen at the very end there. And I kind of like that about it. And I like that. I feel like that's what Karastami himself is saying. I mean, he has, and I think this is uncanny because, you know, his stand-in director, that actor who's playing him, is not walking as fast or as capable, capably through these olive trees as (laughs) these two. But he, he shows up there kind of listening in on that conversation. That didn't happen. He has to be imagining himself what is going on on this walk and viewing it from a from afar. And I like how he gives us that there at the end and says, "Hey, I made a movie kind of about this moment, and it still is not clear what happens. I'm going to do the same for you guys. Here's the ending. Do you see his reaction is indicating that she has, you know, it's it's positive." Could it be something just to get him off her back for the moment and she's going to keep on denying him tomorrow? Or did she turn around and tell him off and and he's now running because he's mad? Probably not. That doesn't really ring true to me based on his reaction. But, right. But you don't really know. You are We are just very distant observers of this life playing out. And I, I really like how that's how this, this whole thing ends. And, oh, and I also really yeah. like that... Um, we finally understand the the fate of our two characters from Where's the Friend's House. They get to come and sit yeah. on set and, and take flowers and home because they're special yeah. guests of the director. <laughs> yeah, and it's just it's very casual. Again, if you hadn't seen those two f- earlier films, that would have just sailed completely past yeah. you as it yeah. did past me. I, I had no <laughs> idea. They're kids. just a couple of boys. <laughs> right, well, whatever. I mean, they're just, you know, basically just people moving across the screen doing something and, and not really registering as anybody of any particular significance because you're more focused on the central relational dynamics between this young couple. I mean, that's basically what the movie becomes about as far as a, a narrative plot is concerned. But it's really, it's, again, it's, it's about... Um, it's it's about living. It's about recovering from uh, whatever kind of setbacks or limitations are placed upon us, and um, you know he's he's using art to convey a message, to communicate with a large audience, to uh, bring some attention to his society. As I said earlier in the episode, you know Iran had a pretty bad public relations uh, issue in certain parts of the world because of things that were being said about it, because of the conduct of its government, and just all the tensions that exist between people of different ethnicities and you know cultures, etc. So all of that stuff is coming through in this really incredible and impressive addition that, that Criterion's put together, and, and I'm just so thankful because I think, uh, as, as I think was the case with you, these, these films, their reputation preceded uh, my discovery mm-hmm. and, and sort of set me up to expect, well, these, are, these must be really special films. Um, they, they were hard to see. Uh, you know, I don't know that there was a good 
standard like you know you can talk about like the three colors trilogy or even the decalogue from kieslowski you know the criterion versions kind of came out and became the definitive sets um but you could have seen those films in earlier you know dvd versions not as nice as what criterion put together i'm not sure you could have found these very conveniently um prior to the the release of this of this box set here well, I know that Where is the Friend's House was on Hulu, even on the Criterion Channel days of Hulu. Okay. But I never mm-hmm. watched it there, and I I don't feel like any of the, the, any of the others ever popped up there. And I feel like I remember people yeah. saying, oh, yeah, they're kind of hard to hard to get a hold of. D- I hear David Blake's well, I think there was edition, mm-hmm. a DVD. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I had the one. but And you can also see that you know there, there was probably a lot of restoration work that needed to happen. I mean, you can even yeah, see in some yeah. of the films, there, there's residual film damage, kind of blotchiness. And even though they've cleaned them up really nice, and this is a beautiful aesthetically um very pleasing the visual imagery i mean one of the things i loved about through the olive trees is just the, the use of the landscape and, and and that's important in all of the films but so many shots of the wind billowing through those olive branches and and just you know the the kind of the stark beauty of the iranian countryside which uh is in some ways it's it's, it's pretty plain and it's pretty um it, it's not elaborate it's it's not lush by any means it's it's kind of a unforgiving landscape um but there's something really beautiful about it and i i really again appreciated that that presentation uh of of a part of the world that you just don't see a lot of on film until you at least go seek it out well so I definitely could go on for another couple of hours because there are things that you know <laughs> yeah. I, I have written yeah. down here that we've not even really talked about in in big terms, but I do feel like we can probably maybe touch on a few of our highlights um, in a in a more brief way and leave it for listeners to to go and discover and 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 you know even correspond with us if they'd like to share their thoughts. Um, but a few of the ones that I wanted to bring up was the 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 cinematography, and you you just touched on it, which is why I was like, oh yeah, I forgot. I need to talk about that a little bit. In each of these films, I mean, they're they're different film stock, they're different um, aspect ratios, and and different. Uh, I think each of them has a different director of photography. Um, just kind of opening up the booklet to make sure. Yeah, each of them has a different director of photography. But I love how they capture the landscape. I love in Where's the Friend's House how they capture the the winding roads. That photography is gorgeous. And also the diminishing light of the day. I think that must be very difficult to do, to capture time passing by light when you're a director of photography. And does such a good job. And um, and life goes on with those big sh- how on earth did they get is that just the other side of the mountain like when they're showing all those ravines with the car driving along there that must mm. have been a, very mm-hmm. difficult to do but that's a, another director of photography and then through the olive trees definitely looks more modern it looks more you know they have better lenses and um, and film stock and it's, it takes you know it's a bigger screen um, but boy boy is it just it's beautiful and I agree with you it's not lush but but they capture how they're able to get life blooming in these things. I love that the house in in through the olive trees when when they're up on the balcony, Hussein and um, uh, Tahera are up on the balcony, and in the door there's a tree growing up in that room with flowers around it. <laughs> you know, I don't mm-hmm. know if that was the way the house was built or if that's post um, 
you know, post-earthquake, you know, shows some time has passed from the earthquake, and this is just what's going on in this house. But it is, there are those little touches of life, you know, these single trees on a hillside, these little uh, blooms at the corners of those winding pathways. Um, Boy, it's just, it, it is, it is beautiful to see this, this landscape and how well it's used to show the lives of the people within it. Again, the focus, I think, mm-hmm. is on the lives, but the landscape really lends itself to that exploration. Yeah, no, I, I, I the visuals of, of all really all three of these films are, are really uh, rewarding to just focus on. But you're right, you can tell by the time of Through the Olive Trees that Kuristami's um, resources, his skills, the, the technical equipment, um, you know, are all kind of definitely progressing. He's becoming, you know, more of a world-class filmmaker on the technical side as well. And, and again, you know, I, I can imagine that there had to be some considerable work done to, you know, give these films, especially the earlier ones, uh, the, the, the look that they do be, do have now because, you know, I, I can't, I'm not sure what the film preservation uh, techniques in Iran, uh, you know, what their standards are, but I have to imagine that's probably not uh, in that particular climate uh, the ideal. Maybe it is nowadays, but I think I can imagine back in the you know 80s, early 90s, there were other priorities, other pressing needs than uh, perfectly temperature controlled archives for uh, you know camera negatives and all of that. So, uh, in fact, I, I know that you know that 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 was part of the 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 lag of getting these films out there is the work that needed to be done to to make them presentable in high definition. Yeah, they they certainly have. Well, David, anything else that you want to make sure that we touch on before we you know kind of say and life goes on and uh, move yeah, away from yeah. it and drift on to you know maybe a taste of cherry or even another box set in the future. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm definitely happy to talk more Kuristami. I want to, if you'll indulge me just a second, I posted a a little TikTok clip, which was very low effort on my part. I basically just pointed my phone (laughs) at the monitor. Um, There's a a special feature. um, Let's see, what's it called here? Kuristami, uh, Bas Kuristami, Truths and Dreams, a 1994 documentary. So it was made after all of these films were in the can. And I'm just going to read a quote of him, you know, characteristically driving in a car and being filmed and presumably interviewed by somebody else. So he says, Children, I don't mean to contradict my colleagues about burning the midnight oil and working hard, but let me tell you, as an exception to that, I didn't strive in the least to do what I do. There was no special effort or premeditated plan. It's good to make room for luck and fate and not kill yourself striving. And don't think you'll necessarily become what you want to be. The plan you have in your head might lead somewhere else. And years later, you'll see it wasn't a bad choice after all. I don't see how a child can decide what he or she wants to be. At 53, I still don't really know what my job is. As a friend once said, our whole life is one long temp job. And then he folds his map and keeps on driving. <laughs> and so, anyways, I, I just thought that's a very nice little characteristic glance at the man. It certainly doesn't sum up his entire philosophy of life. But I think his openness to the spontaneity and the unexpected. Uh, he was a visual yeah. artist, a photographer, I think a painter. And he got into cinema as a way of kind of 
expanding his range of, of expression. Um, but he, he wasn't a cinephile. He wasn't a big movie watcher. He, he had his own vision. He had his own idea what he wanted to portray out there. He would watch other movies to sort of learn how certain things are done, but he wasn't a film buff. And uh, I think that kept his vision a little bit more pure, uh, even though, again, you can see he's he's striving for artistic effect. He's just very consciously trying to avoid being unduly influenced by, you know, other concepts. And so, yeah, this this is a great introduction to the, the, the richness of Karastami. Maybe Close Up would be the first go-to film if you want to sort of get started. And uh, it, that's a, a, a fantastic, wonderful, and, and pretty accessible film, too. Uh, but this year, I, see, I think, was where I felt like I'm really getting to know the, the heart and soul of this guy, at least on a certain level, and um, definitely going to be pursuing that uh, relationship going forward as we get into his other films and uh, maybe even some of the other works that he did uh, that weren't necessarily cinematic. We'll see if I can you know, track those down somehow. Well, thanks so much, David, for, again, for your time. Thanks for the, the philosophy and the poetry today. I do appreciate it, as always. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I again, I, I feel like we, you know, you know, we we've had our, have a good you know, couple hours chat now, and uh, you know, there's certainly more that could be said, but uh, I think we've we've done a good job of uh, opening this up and extracting some some good stuff. So happy to share it with listeners, and definitely welcome any comments or feedback you have. Um, curious to know what other people think about this gorgeous collection of films. Well, and I'll just say, um, if there's ever been a box that we can look at and say. It just shows how it, every layer, you can get another layer and another layer, and it could go on and on and on. <laughs> this is it. You oh, know, yeah. this is definitely it. Yeah, again, we could throw a taste of cherry on on as another, you know, nesting doll <laughs> on top of this and close mm-hmm. up and, and mm-hmm. homework is in it, but it could be a part of it. You know, there's there's so much here, so much richness, and uh, look forward to... to uh, to our to our next project uh without necessarily leaving this one behind as our as we go on and and continue to explore things so thanks again david we'll talk to you soon all right (laughs) all right see you around the corner